Well, welcome, friends, fans, and colleagues. It is Wednesday night, so it must be Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, I'm your host, Karen Tate, uh, and I've been here with you most Wednesdays uh, for the last decade or so. Uh, You know, I'm going to actually have to look back because it might actually be a few years longer than a decade, but the time has flown. Um, And I just want to give a shout-out to Zingaya. Uh, That is the group, the musical group that um, is responsible for that opening music. They are a great group out of Las Vegas, and uh, that uh, song you heard, that little snippet, that tease, uh, is from their single called Breath of Passion. And I have to tell you, it's been a crazy day today, uh, and my adrenaline's been pumping. But as soon as I hear that cut, Breath of Passion, I kind of take a breath and calm down, and I get this feeling that I'm on the back of a camel just sort of loping across the desert. Um, Anyway, (laughs) that's where my mind went uh, in in the last uh, minute or two, uh, hearing their their wonderful music. So thank you, Zingaya. Uh, And thank you to all my listeners out there. If you're new to the show, I invite you to look through the archives. There's great, great stuff there uh, from incredible people, from Noam Chomsky to Vandana Shiva to... Uh, Rianne Eisler, Starhawk, uh, all wonderful academics, uh, visionaries, uh, uh, you know, just an incredible forward thinkers uh, who are going to help us change the world. Uh, and to my regular listeners, I so appreciate your listener loyalty. So thank you, thank you, thank you. I know there's lots of things out there that you could be doing besides listening to this show. So uh, I appreciate it if you're here with me tonight or later from the archives. And I'm really excited about tonight's show. Uh, It is so relevant, so relevant. Uh, The show topic officially is the sin of white supremacy, uh, and it's about um, white Christianity's responsibility for racism and discrimination. And uh, I have with me tonight... um, Fordham University theology professor Janine Hill Fletcher. Uh, She's written a book uh, uh, claiming white Christians are responsible for racism and discrimination in America. And she's with me tonight to discuss this exact subject, uh, including strategies she proposes uh, to help foster some racial healing in America, Uh, the first of which uh, is to demand of white Christians they accept the role they play uh, in racist policies and structures discrimination in America and uh, you know if if you're a regular listener you've probably heard me say this uh, at least once or twice I am from the south I grew up in New Orleans and uh, I I lived this firsthand and for a long time it felt very normal Uh, and I think when I first started to When it first really started to bother me, I uh, was a convention coordinator at one of the major hotels in New Orleans, you know, a big tourist town, and I was responsible uh, for seeing to it that our 10,000 square feet of meeting space 
was turned over for every event, you know, meetings, um, dinners, all of that stuff, and making sure conventions went well. And we had a wonderful crew of black guys who were responsible for doing that, and I was indebted to them for making sure uh, everything went well. But I have to tell you, some of the management in the hotel just treated these guys like they were beasts of burden, and it broke my heart. And um, I think that's when I really started to see what these people live with every day, every day, every day. And my eyes, you know, just started to open. And then leaving the South and moving to California, that just opened my eyes to all sorts of other things as well, you know, things that I just accepted as normal that I really just couldn't accept as normal anymore. So anyway, um, let me tell you a little bit uh, more about uh, Janine Hill Fletcher, and then we're going to jump in and talk about her book and maybe even a couple of her other books, uh, or maybe I'll have her come back to talk about those. Uh, Janine Hill Fletcher is a constructive theologian whose research is at the intersection of Christian uh, systemic theology and issues of diversity, which include gender, race, and religious diversity. Her most recent book, uh, which we're talking about uh, tonight, is titled The Sin of White Supremacy, Christianity, Racism, and Religious Diversity in America. just came out this year. Uh, her other works include Monopoly on Salvation, A Feminist Approach to Religious Pluralism, that came out in 2005, and Mother- Motherhood is Metaphor, uh, Engendering Interreligious Dialogue, uh, and that came out in 2013. She's a professor of theology at Fordham University in Bronx, New York. She's a board member of the Grassroots Social Justice Organization, the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition. Janine, welcome, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Karen, thanks so much for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation and to thinking with you about the challenges that you've already identified. Me too. You know, me too. I really do want to talk about this because, you know, I know a lot of well-intentioned women who really do want to change the world. Um, You know, and, and sometimes our primary focus tends to be um, you know, women's rights and equal pay and all of that. And, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, I, I, I kind of feel funny even saying it, but, you know, it has to be said. I think all of this stuff that is surfaced with racism, uh, like when Roy Moore was running for Senate and you had all of these white women supporting him who was, uh, you know, this pervert child molester practically, or not practically, I think he allegedly, whatever, I don't want to get into trouble here. But, um, you know, it, it, to see even some of the feminist women I know maybe not realize they have issues uh, with racism. You know, we say we want equality, uh, we say we want equality, but when it comes right down to it, do we just want equality for women? Or do we want equality for everybody? Um, I I have a dear woman who I love with all my heart who said, are you trying to make me ashamed to be white? Mm -hmm. And I said, no, I'm not trying to make you ashamed to be white, but I'm saying look what white people have done. So (laughs) um, I wonder what your experience was that made you – you know, have the courage to come out and talk about this because in some places this is a thorny subject. That That's a great question. And I want to go back to uh, your own description of your own experience. You 
describe that you lived in the you lived in the South uh, and you just you used the phrase something like that you lived this firsthand. You lived these issues of racism and racial racial inequality firsthand. And I would want to say that all of us in the U.S. have lived this firsthand, although many of us don't see it that way, right? That I grew up in, um, outside of Chicago in a white suburb um, that was not just predominantly white, but that might have even been almost exclusively white. So this is in the 1970s that I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And so I lived racism and racial segregation and racial inequality firsthand, even though my lifetime was uh, up, in, up until certainly uh, most of my grade school years, um, was largely spent among white people, right? And so mm-hmm. the, the, the racism that I experienced firsthand was precisely the effects of a history that created this segregated neighborhood, right? My own white neighborhood didn't fall from the sky. So I also lived this firsthand, although in a very different context. Um, and okay. so you, you asked, you know, where did the, the origin of the book come from? So you might picture my own story uh, outside of Chicago in a, in a white neighborhood, uh, and uh, a neighborhood and a church uh, within the, the Catholic Church that really promoted a, an engagement with the world, an engagement that said, you know, as you have said, we want to change the world. We want the world to be a better place. We want the world to be, uh, you know, a life-giving opportunity for all people. So even though the, the, um, my experience was a, a largely white experience in my uh, neighborhood of origin, we had the vision that the world needed to be changed, right? Um, and so this sense in which a Christian orientation cultivated the desire to change the world, that, that I can trace all the way back to my, you know, my, own, my own origins uh, as, a, as a young person in, in the church. Uh, but it wasn't until very, very recently that I saw that racism was a part of what fundamentally needed to be changed in my world. Um, and so the, the, the origin of the book I describe in the, in the preface, um, and you can actually get the preface as part of the online Google Books uh, preview edition of this. And it describes my being in an institution that's a Catholic university and being part of the service learning program, which is where we connect students and faculty to the work of justice in the community. Um, and so this impetus and this feeling that we could change the world with our actions, but that it came with a sense of, in a predominantly white institution, we were going to change the world for people who didn't have what we had. And the reality in my uh, institution is that our predominantly white institution is within a community of color in the Bronx in New York City. And so the way in which this desire to change the world um, didn't see racism as the foundational uh, ground of our uh, inequality right, was really challenged by this work. And so it was through that work that was propelled by this sense of, oh, we can, we can change the world, um, that was work of a predominantly white institution into a community of color, um, that, the, that the questions of how race 
plays into the inequality that we want to see transformed was really um, brought home to me. So you talked about, you know, uh, uh, a feminist movement that wants to see equal pay. Um, and that is something that is not only in the feminist movement, but, but in other areas of, of desiring, right, economic well-being and a greater mm-hmm. sense of economic equality, but that that itself has been racialized. That itself, the, the economic disparity, has a racial component. Right, so, right. So I've gone on, I've gone on quite, a, quite a while. I'm not <laughs> sure if you want to revisit no, no, uh, an element of the question. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's kind of unpack it. I mean, you said a, you said a lot um, and and uh, good stuff. And uh, you know, and, and recently, you know, I had Kenitra Brooks uh, on the show, and you know, she made the important point. Uh, and I and I have to say, you know, as a, as a white feminist woman, she she opened my eyes. I mean, every day my eyes are opened even more. You know, you think you know, but then you realize what you don't know. And she said. Um, you know, she she uh, made the point that um, you know white feminist women. Yeah, we we are well intentioned, but so many don't realize that while we're out there maybe fighting for abortion rights or equal pay, that a black woman those might not be her top priorities. Her top priorities might be their children who are being shot by police. Uh, or you know how black people are uh, tend to be institutionalized, uh, arrested, and, inca- and incarcerated. Is what I'm trying to say. Incarcerated mm-hmm. so much quicker, and you know those may be higher on a black feminist woman's list even than equal pay or uh, or abortion rights or something like that. And the mm-hmm. fact that so many white women may be able to go to work or go out there and be an activist because they are relying on and perhaps a black housekeeper or uh, a nanny to take care of their kids. So you know there is you know there's all of these other um, elements. You know it's like these layers of the onion that we sort of have to keep peeling away at. And if you were in a uh, and where I'm going with this is uh, it, it I'm thinking as you described your beginnings uh, in a white community in the middle of the Bronx. Did you run into that where maybe, um, and, and, and I don't know, uh, maybe I, I'm, uh, I, I'm of the wrong, uh, I, I, I have, have a misconception, but um, did, did it happen that you engaged the black community uh, with your white community to figure out how to make this happen, or, or were, were you sort of insulated there uh, in the white community without having the black voices help you figure this all out right well i think that that's what the real what we saw as the real problem in empowering both students and faculty to want to do the work of justice um that they they needed anti-racism tools so that they weren't entering communities of color and imagining that oh the educated white woman right the, it has the answers Right. Um, And so uh, my my mentor in that program really insisted um, that if we're going to do the work of struggling for equality, if we're going to do the work of justice and trying to change the world and we are 
largely white uh, persons who are trying to do this work. We need the tools of anti-racism to recognize the ways that whiteness created these realities right. so, that the, so that the local history, and this is actually a history in, in many, many of the, of the cities in our nation, the local history is that the communities of color in the Bronx um, are economically, uh, uh, um, sorry, uh, experience uh, an economic disparity. Uh, they experience an educational deficit. They experience uh, um, poverty and uh, lack of access to health care and lack of access to green space and to good jobs, et cetera. But that that reality has a history in which white people had the benefits given to them of all those things, education, home ownership, uh, access mm-hmm. to jobs, access to um, uh, green space, access to health care, right? That, that the reality of um, inequality, that the, you know, that the, the well-being middle-class students and faculty say, oh, well, let's help the Bronx, well, let's see the history of what created that disparity. And once we've seen the history, we can see choices that were made to empower white persons, white right. families with home ownership, white people with access, white women with education. And we can see the history of exclusions from home ownership access to, to health care, access to education that were, right. that were part of our history. Right. So that and I think that it's that recognition that the that the disparity that we encounter today has a long, much longer history than this. Sorry, than this moment. Yeah. I think that the work needs to be done to recognize what are the sources of the fact that we are coming at this question of uh, equality or coming at the feminist movement from different locations. Right. It's that those locations aren't. Those locations aren't based on the color of our skin, except insofar as the colors of our skin have, cre- have been uh, differentially uh, um, empowered or disempowered in our history. So are we talking about, um, and, and maybe we'll have to define this just to make sure you know, everybody out there is on the page with us, are we talking about institutionalized racism I mean systems, and and you know, and I'm just I'm doing my best to give a definition of that. It, it's things. It's the structure of society discriminates against certain people, whether we realize it or not. You know, things that we take as normal that we don't even realize creates a disparity for somebody that's maybe not the same color as us. I mean, I found out recently that when. Um, uh, veterans, uh, you know, when the war was over and veterans were able to get, um, low, you know, low-interest loans to buy houses, that was only for white veterans. That wasn't for black veterans who risked their lives just like their white counterparts. That blew me away. I couldn't imagine that the government could get away with doing such a thing. And, but that's a great example, I think, of I, I guess that's institutionalized racism, so, right? So, so that is both a historical example 
of legislation that empowered white families and disempowered families of color in this country. So that's a historical example that was legislated that then we can see the ways in which those choices then created the institution of home ownership, for example, right, or the institution mm-hmm. of education, right, with these disparities built into them. Right, uh, right. So, so I, I mean, so I think a, about yeah. the, what was it the Tusk was it the Tuskegee Airmen? Wait, wait, who? It was some black uh, group of men who were um, experimented on, uh, you know, so that they could, you know, doctors could learn about syphilis. I mean, today I saw the statue was being moved to a cemetery. Some white doctor was experimenting, mm. a gynecologist experimenting on black women. I mean, I, I mean, it gives me goosebumps to think that we that we could even have imagined doing stuff like that, and it was okay. But that's precisely the history that many. Uh, uh, that many folks in America and uh, w- would rather uh, erase and simply, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't we don't pass that on, right? right. The, the the fact that you were blown away that uh, the that uh, in our rather recent history that veterans uh, of color could not access the um, the resources of the GI Bill. Right. Why didn't you know that? Right. You didn't know that because we don't tell that as part of our history. We don't tell as part of our history the the practices of redlining. Right. We don't tell the practices of empowering white families to move to the suburbs, to own their own homes with government programs supporting that. But that that but that those programs were not were, were dedicated to white families and black and Latino families in this country couldn't access that benefit. Right? We yeah. don't tell that story, right? We tell the yeah. story of, oh, look, everyone came home from the war and everyone moved out to the suburbs and everyone had their white picket fence and their two-car garage or whatever it was, right? Mm-hmm. But that in, mm-hmm. fact is, that, in fact, is a white story, right? And it's a white story that, that simply erases the injustice of dedicating those uh, governmental resources to white persons at the exclusion of people of color. And that's, that's the same uh, history and institutional reality of education in this country. Uh, it's the reality of home ownership that builds wealth, so if two generations ago my grandfather benefited from a racist system that allowed white families to gain access to home ownership and not families of color, and then those schools were built up within those communities so that my father had the, had the uh, access to good education in a good neighborhood and the wealth that's being built up from home ownership of his father, then he passes all of those benefits on to me. I may not be responsible, right, for the injustices that happened two generations ago in this racist, um, these racist practices that are surprising us today, but I'm still the beneficiary, even if I don't know about them. Right. Right. So, well, you know, so, one, 
Well, one of my pet peeves is, uh, I I mean, I think not just with racism, but so many things, you know, uh, you know, if we, for instance, you know, I mean, I I was uh, 40 years old before I learned about Howard Zinn's uh, history of the United States, you know, because we only learn about the history of the conquerors. It makes me crazy every Thanksgiving we have this sanitized celebration of the pilgrims and the Indians, you know, Um, because we, like you're saying, you know, we, we don't have this transparency about the truth. We live these illusions of what really happened. Uh, I had an academic on the show who talked about uh, brothel owners helped um, the West um, uh, grow and prosper. But, you know, you don't talk about those women who own the brothels and, uh, you know, or give them the credit. You know, it's kind of taboo. I mean, all of these, uh, these, these different um, truths, that I, I, in a way, I think because we don't tell them, it enables us to keep the status quo. Um, and and is is this really, Janine? Is this about capitalism needs an underclass so certain people can get rich at the expense of others? Is is that at the heart of this? The the capitalism is a crucial component in this story. Right. Uh, And the ways in which stolen land and stolen labor were the foundations of a country that built itself up on uh, the 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 lives and the backs uh, and the and the sweat and the toil of people of color, Um, that there is a there is an analysis of this history that really points to the the. you know, just the insatiable production, right, of private wealth, private ownership. Um, uh, but I also think that the that that doesn't just float by itself, right? That there's an ideology that is, um, you know, kind of a companion to that, uh, an ideology that I also would say um, is is inflected by theological thinking as well and it's an ideology of individualism it's an ideology of constructing a world where there's a we within our world and there's an us outside of it right um and so the the project of capitalism and the and the you know uh, unfettered uh, accumulation of private wealth um, is also built on a notion that I only have to care about first myself, then per- then my family, then perhaps my neighborhood, right? But that the very the very imagination of who counts in my world um, is one of the foundational uh, things that we have to look at. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's um, you know, let's let's definitely go there. Um, you know, I uh, you know I've been reading a lot uh, to to educate myself. I mean, I you know I, I'm a recovering Catholic myself. Uh, you know, having 
you know, grew up in New Orleans. And, um, you know, when it comes to economics, you know, I remember the only thing they taught us was, oh, uh, let's read the book Animal Farm, and that will tell us why uh, capitalism is wonderful and everything else, uh, you know, is, is, uh, is evil, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm getting past all of that now. And, you know, when I realized, you know, it was the socialists and the communists, along with the progressive Christians, I believe, if I have my facts right, that pushed FDR to start Social Security. Uh, and you know, and things that would help the poor, you know, uh, you know, and, uh, and and the elderly, and you know, uh, all of the people that the social safety net uh, helps. It, but lately, you know, I have I have felt um, you know Christianity to be more repugnant than ever before. Mm. Um, you know, when I see, you know, the evangelicals back in Trump and people like Roy Moore and and maybe they just, you know, don't have as big a megaphone, but where are the Christians allowing this income disparity? I mean the Republicans are supposed to be the religious party, you know, and how do they justify, rationalize this war that they have on the poor? Um, you know, this certainly isn't very Jesus-like, as most people, I, I think, uh, coin the phrase. So much in there, so much in there. Um, from a theological perspective, one of the things that I want to investigate further is the way in which the language of grace seems to suggest to many people uh, that God, God uh, reveals God's self in the many blessings, right? So that if someone is wealthy or powerful, right, or uh, of, of a high social standing or economic status, right? Um, we think uh, colloquially, perhaps, we think of them perhaps as being blessed, as being graced, right? We, we allow the concept of, of grace to align with material well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when we do that, we too often ignore the ways in which wealth is built that have been unjust, that have mm-hmm. been uh, that have been uh, racialized or built on ideologies of white supremacy. Uh, but we, but nevertheless, right? We imagine that uh, you know the material goods of the world are a good and 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 the way that they acquire to individuals right are a measure somehow of the blessings of god right and that to me is not that that's not that's not crazy talk i hear things like that right and we mm-hmm. have this mm-hmm. outlook right we have this outlook that uh, you know, the poor, oh, well, they must not be doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? Yeah, they're lazy, oh, the, right? Right, right. <laughs> all of these ways of thinking about this, right, that are, that are theological assessments of the, the weather, the, the, sorry, the measure of human beings, right? But if right. we lack the history and if we lack the structural analysis, then we feed into that, and we think, mm-hmm. oh, well, well, God really blesses those people in power, and God must be, 
you know, withholding God's blessing from those people who are struggling, those people who are poor, those people who aren't, you know, moving up in the social status. Uh, and yet, and this is where it, it broke my heart it, in, a, in a strange way, broke my heart to hear you uh, describe Christianity as repugnant. Uh, and I want to, I want to, I want to dwell with that. Um, because the God who Christians raise up as the witness of God's grace and God's presence in the world is the broken, the despised, the torture victim on a cross, mm-hmm. right? And that that right. rather than um, orienting ourselves to the world and saying, where does God reside? God resides among the torture victim. God resides among those who have been broken by the powerful, because that's what the story of Jesus, for many of us who read it this way, the story of Jesus is the story of one who aligned himself and those who, who, who you know, followed him in the Jesus movement, aligned himself over and against those oppressive powers. Yeah, because right? blessed are the poor, right? I mean, and and what's the story about the camel has a better chance of passing through the eye of the needle than a rich man? You know, it's like all of that's been forgotten. Greed, one of the deadly seven deadly sins or something, that's all kind of been uh, swept away. So there are ways of reading the New Testament that really do challenge the reality of white supremacy, the reality of economic disparity, the reality of uh, women's exclusion. There are, way, there are elements within the gospel texts and the stories of the New Testament and the stories of the Christian tradition um, that would be real resources for transforming the world for greater justice. And yet those stories, same stories have been interpreted, right, in ways that spiritualize the message, right? That the that the that the the poor, you know, blessed are the poor, right? They will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that means after this life, right? Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. That the the sense in which we can easily both individualize and spiritualize the message of the gospel, right, is part of the you know part of the practice of what we see. Um, uh, that uh, that has allowed Christians to align with the powerful, right? Um, where uh, many theologians would say, well, there's a, there's a lot in this story that seems to suggest that Christianity should be aligning with those who are disempowered, right? Challenging yeah, those oppressive right. structures, and yet and right. yet have not, and yet have not, right? Right. Um, and, 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 you know, and I wonder why, you know, where are the progressive Christians? Where are even the moderates? You know, we hear all the time, oh, where are the moderate Muslims? You know, <laughs> where are the progressive Muslims, you know, speaking out against? But, I mean, the Christians are just as guilty. Um, I mean, I, I think about, um, go, go ahead. Well, what are they hearing week after week when they sit in their, in their churches? Are they hearing? <laughs> are they hearing? Right? Are the are the moderate Christians or the progressive Christians sitting in churches that are saying, "Look, we need to mobilize against the sin of white supremacy. We need to mobilize against the kingdom of evil that allows this disparity in wealth that is such 
it is such an enormous disparity of wealth in this country, right, that we've just, we've just given over our values to the values of capitalism, right? When they sit in, the, in their congregations, what's the message that they hear? Do they hear the message of mobilization or do they hear the message of a spiritualized gospel that says, let's not think about those difficult things. Let's just be good people. Let's just be good to one another, right? I'm a nice person. I'm kind to my neighbor. I hold the door open. I help, you know, the lady walk across the street. Right? Whatever all those individual senses mm-hmm. of, of I'm a good person are, right, without looking at the structure of evil within which Christians are doing these individual acts of kindness, right? And that's really the heart of the book. Um, it originally was not called The Sin of White Supremacy. It was originally, the, t- the working title that I was working with was called um, Love in a Weighted World. And the idea there was that Christians, of course, are called to love, right? But we can't be mobilized to just love, you know, be nice people, be, be nicer to my family, be nicer to the people I meet in my neighborhood, right, without this, the real, a, a very um, clear look at the reality that the system within which we are attempting to love has been weighted to our benefit and right. has dispossessed people and is actually not anywhere near the kingdom of God, but we actually reside in a kingdom of evil. Right. And that that kingdom of evil has been racialized. Well, you know, I think something that white feminists will, uh, or or, let me just say women feminists will uh, understand when we talk about white male privilege, we understand that. Uh, But I I think we don't always think, you know, we think about it in terms of, uh, you know, white men don't recognize their own privilege. Um, uh, and so I think you're saying mm-hmm. the same thing in a way that Christians, uh, you know, Christians are not looking at um, their privilege or white mm-hmm. privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 I don't know. I guess I'm I'm juxtaposing and, here gender with um, race. But 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 I don't I don't I I think that we as as feminist thinkers and as feminist activists need to think more about not a juxtaposition but an intersection between white uh, privilege right and male privilege and how white women are the beneficiaries of white privilege and white supremacy mm-hmm. i have a i have mm-hmm. a, a friend uh, who's a trainer with the people's institute for survival and beyond which is a anti-racism group that does you know two-day long workshops all over the country um, and he he likes to remind me that the uh, that the greatest beneficiaries of the programs of affirmative action have been white women that we don't even recognize often right the ways in which our own struggle for equality uh, is infused with white privilege, right? And so uh, kind of being willing as white feminists, being willing to say, okay, this is the narrative that I have inherited. This is the reality that I see in front of me, right, that requires that I as a white woman stand up, take a stand, have my voice heard, um, it needs to be um, needs to have a greater openness to simply listening to 
how my story of struggle and survival and, uh, you know, uh, uh, movement towards equality might be built on or impacting the struggle of people of color, right, in a way that I don't even realize. Right. I think we need to be open to that intersectionality. Right. Well, and there's something also called... um, and I, I, I hope I can remember and get this right. If, if Correct me, please, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. Something about, there's a phrase called white women's tears. And, uh, and, and, and it has something to do with the fact that in order not to offend the sensibilities of white women, um, uh, black women and people of color have, uh, you know, have been damaged. Um, does that does that sound familiar to you at all? It, it, uh, the phrase only sounds vaguely familiar, but the but the reality that you point to sounds uh, uh, resonates with my own experience um, in those locations where white women have been willing to to open themselves up and uh, engage in the questions of of racial disparity and anti racism work. Um, I think it would be this is this is me uh, bringing in some things that I have not done yet. I think it would be really useful for white feminists to ask ourselves what are the characteristics of white womanhood or white feminism that we inhabit and that we enact uh without even knowing it. Um, and it was only in the context of being among um, uh, colleagues who I who who I love and who I trust that I could hear their words, uh, colleagues of color, when I would when I would uh, enact certain things within our uh, collaborations, where they would say, "Oh yeah, that's kind of white woman of you," and I would say, and- "What on earth would what what on earth would you mean by that? That makes no sense. There's no such thing." as white you know there there's no such characteristics of white woman right i'm just i'm just me uh and then seeing the kinds of patterns uh that i share? enact can you share yeah, some examples I mean, so so the so the need to fill the the silent spaces with my own voice the need to have my voice heard is something that i am certain uh i uh, inhabit from out of a feminist, a white feminist um, uh, shaping um, as a young woman and through my young adulthood and into adulthood, the sense in which my voice has been silenced. So when I have the opportunity, I'd like to make my voice heard. But what happens within, uh, what often happens within a multiracial context is that the white forms of, uh, whether they're white forms of knowledge or white forms of communication or white cultural forms that create that space, uh, get filled with more and more white voices, like my own, right, where I have been so shaped to want to make sure that I am not silenced, that I, in the process, silence other people. Mm, okay. Uh, and and so you know so I'm I, I'm certain that there's better work and there, there since mine is not work only mine is simply reflection on experience I am certain that there is work out there 
um, that has been done that uh, does a better job of naming what some of those qualities, right, of white womanhood are. Um, the number of times that I have been, uh, that I have heard from women of color that white women uh, both fixate on and actually uh, transgress the private space of uh, touching a, 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 a woman of color's hair. The number of times that I have heard that from women of color, the first time I thought, oh, that's strange that, that someone would do that to you. The second time I heard it, I thought, oh, that's weird. I heard that. The third time I heard it, I thought, holy, holy crap, is that a pattern that, hmm. that, that white women invade women of color's personal space by both commenting on and, in fact, touching their hair? Uh, so there's much there's much better work. I mean, there's, there there must be much better work uh, than than the nothing that I have done on this so far. But I think that white white uh, white feminism needs to learn about our own patterns yeah. Um, yeah. in 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 ways that we have been blind to the damage that we're doing to to women yeah. of color. Or um, a, a friend of mine who um, a, a white woman feminist who's been trying to learn every she, everything she can about this because her niece is um uh is a mixed race child uh said that she saw in, it in action once when she was in a support group uh with mostly black women and um she was constantly deferred to and she was the only white woman in the group and she said she saw the white deference you know, um, and it 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 made her terribly uncomfortable. But but she but it, she learned something that day. You know, I mean, it opened her eyes to, uh, you know, the you know the uh, you know white woman privilege kind of a thing. Uh, that might even been part of when she was explaining to me about the uh, white women's tears too. It, mm-hmm. um, it, so you know, I I think you know we as white women we have to do better um understanding all of this um it's not enough i mean look we're all busy you know um you know but it i it maybe it isn't enough to just go out there and be an activist uh for abortion rights and women's pay i mean if we really care about uh equality then I I think we have to do what we can to educate ourselves better about you know these other issues as well, and and because try to un- and try to understand what would make you know people like these old white women go vote for Roy Moore. You, you know, um, and there's 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 two different things that I that I'm hearing there. One is that the fight for equality intersects with these these other dimensions, right? That equality isn't just a a bland notion, right? Equality and inequality is absolutely shot through with race, gender access to education, right? All of these other features, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. able-bodiedness, sexual orientation, right? All of those features are are elements that impact one's uh, ability to access and maintain economic uh, well-being, right? And so if all of those things impact uh, 
if we stick with, you know, access to economic well-being, if all of those things impact economic access, then of course we as uh, feminist, you know, members of a feminist movement need to be paying attention to all that intersectionality, all those different ways in which it's not just women, right? It's not just this single category of women. It's thinking about all the different dimensions of our identity that create that intersectionality that we need to think about, right? Trans women or, or uh, differently able-bodied women or women of color, right? That when we're thinking about equality, I think that the history of the women's movement uh, has been demonstrated to show that it was largely white women's interests, right, that were articulated as the goals of feminism, right? But well, if and, we can – go ahead. Well, it, and when you said white women's interests, it reminded me of something that I think is important and maybe it speaks to why – uh, like these white women were, uh, you know, supporting Trump, supporting Roy Moore, is, you know, white women um, tend to side with their oppressor, and you know they they uh, you know they are going to stick with, um, you know maybe you know uh, you know maybe the men in their family, uh, and as opposed to um, other women. Where you know, it, 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 I think there's something about that. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking as you were uh, talking just then. I'm, I'm thinking about um, uh, goals of the feminism that I inherited. I would say that the goals of the feminine, feminism that I inherited was, hey, I'm just as good as any man. I should be able to be as powerful, as rich, as well educated as any man. Right, so that raising up someone like, like Trump, who who appears to be, right, uh, uh, really having accessed all of these um, locations of power, right, power, wealth, uh, uh, you know, his way is the is the way that things fall, right? That that it's. I'm a little bit reluctant to say siding with the oppressor because that would suggest that that, that, that that person is recognized as an oppressor to the individual, right? But I do think that there's something about desiring, right, these values, these values that are values of me being superior to others, me having more power, me having more access my way goes right that there's something that i inherited from my own you know feminist upbringing that was hey look no one can tell you that you shouldn't have what every man has access to right so if if there's a a narrative that is a capitalist narrative a narrative of power um donald donald trump represents pretty well this this image of who we are to be as human beings uh that is my way goes right i am right i have the most power i have the most wealth um and that i could see women being encouraged to identify themselves as the most powerful right the best educated the most you know the one whose way 
goes. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't see it. So I, I, I do think that 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 the element of participating in one's own oppression is part of that. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking uh, deeper in terms of, you know, what's the ideology? What does, what does Trump represent for people? I, I think he represents success. I think he represents power and wealth and so much wealth that, you know, people follow what he says and his way goes. Um, hmm. And, and the narrative of, the United States of America has been pull oneself up by one's bootstraps and be the best individual, better than everyone else, right? Um, and for so you're me, saying they admire. So you're so you're saying they admire him and they want to be him. I'm hypothesizing right? that. I yeah, haven't yeah, done this. Yeah. I haven't done the study to support that. Um, but I I do think that that uh, I, I I do. I think that we have a nation of of people, right, who believe that the more money I have, the more social standing I have, the more power I have, the more I'm blessed, the more I'm, you know, the the, the premier human being, right? right? Rather than asking the question, well, how did you get that money? And on whose backs... Uh, have you stood in order to be perceived as the strongest and most powerful? Yeah, who did right? you exploit? Uh, <laughs> exactly. You exploit, that's, exa- you know? that's exactly right. But but we don't tell the history that way. We don't tell our own story that way as a nation, nor do we interrogate individuals in that way, right? So that we look and we say, oh, this 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 Pew report from 2011, you're, you, you can Google it and your, our, our listeners can, can Google it. This Pew report from 2011, um, uh, the title is uh, 20 to 1 that describes the wealth gap in this country from the reports 2011, it hasn't changed that much, that the wealth disparity between white households and black and Latino households was that white households had 20 times greater wealth. And yet we look at that and we say, oh, wow, why can't those black and Latino folks get their act together? Rather than look at that and say, on what sort of exploitation has that been built? On what sort of dispossession has that been built? On what sort of exclusions from home ownership that builds wealth, education that builds wealth, right? We, we look mm-hmm. at the reality in front of us, and we want to be among the powerful, and we narrate our, our personal histories, and we narrate our national histories, as the histories of the winners, as the histories of the most powerful, rather mm-hmm. than looking at the values that I see represented in the Christian tradition that says, look, that's not the point. The point is for all of us together to create a kingdom of well-being in which love can flourish. So so back to your, your experience of the repugnance of Christianity. Um, I, I, I share that insofar as a great, great disappointment. Our epic yeah. failure to love is, what I, is the way that I name it. I, yeah. think, I think Christianity could be a love story, and I think we've utterly failed at it. 
True. And, you know, for me, I think when I first turned uh, turned my back on Christianity was, um, you know, as a, as a woman who discovered a feminine face of God and what patriarchy has done women. Uh, and, the, you know, the, the, I mean, the fact that I didn't even know about a feminine face of God and, right. uh, it, and, it, and all that entails until uh, I was 30 years old, I was angry for a really long time, you know, that's that right. that could have been right. kept from me. And, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, it, it, this whole patriarchal idea, I, I think also, mm. um, you know, it, you know, I guess getting back to this idea of why would women side with their oppressor because they want to be on the side of power. You know, as mm-hmm. my mother used to say, that's the side their bread is buttered on, you know, because mm. um, I've always thought, why can't women stick together? You know, if women mm-hmm. really just stuck together, we could change everything. But, you know, um, we just, can't seem to manage to to do that you know um our our priorities um you know they're they're more individual i guess than thinking about the we and the us it's really about the i and the me it's about the i and the me and it's also about being willing to participate in a worldview in which there is a hierarchy to humanity that mm-hmm. some human beings are more valuable than other human beings. And so the pattern of patriarchy, right, that says the powerful male uh, is a, a better version of the human being than other forms of being human. And it's that same hierarchy of humanity that, that, that women and men and people in all sorts of social locations that we participate in. Right, that 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 we don't uh, identify with um, those who are seen as, uh, you know, of a lower social standing or less right. powerful. Right, we we align ourselves with those above us in this hierarchy of humanity, rather than dismantling the whole damn thing. Right, mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. saying. We need to build this foundation back from the ground up in everything we do on the basis of an equality that we're going to do our best to commit to, right? Which means access for people who are differently abled, which means uh, uh, re- reversing some of the history of a lack of access for people of color in this country, which means uh, a greater um, openness to religious diversity, right? All of these ways, all of these um, ideological systems that we allow ourselves to inhabit that, that, that invite us to think about humanity as a hierarchy of greater and lesser human beings, well, we have to dismantle that hierarchy, right, as our as our place from which to work toward equality. And and you know, Janine, we're, when you think about it, there's so much delusion and um, and 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 denial. I mean, and I know this is this is simplistic, but I think about growing up. Um, just about every face of Jesus I saw, they were blonde-haired and blue-eyed. Of course, blue-eyed. they were. Of course, you know? they were. Yes. Yes. 
and and, the, and I mean, and I, I wonder, thinking back, how many? I mean, I know most of the Christians I grew up with didn't know anything about the history of Christianity, and they don't want to know. Uh, I mean, heaven forbid, we can't upset that apple cart. Um, but I mean, uh, even you know, uh, you know, the, this the idea that that Jesus was a Jew and not a Christian. You know, I mean, it, it's it's crazy the ignorance that so much of this, um, uh, you know, gets propped up on. Um, I, I don't know. You know, uh, it it just it disturbs me that people are so willing to just swallow everything and never look any deeper. Um, it, 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 it both disturbs and disappoints me because the. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. the 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 story of the gospel to me is a story of challenging the status quo, of challenging our expectations, of 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 always. Uh, never quite being satisfied, right, with the good deeds that I'm doing, right? Always asking the question, well, how do I, you know, what are my blind spots and how do I do this in a new way? And so um, you said disturbing, and I say, I, I just say disappointing. It's like, well, you know, we can tell whatever stories we want, right? Um, and and people have chosen to be part of communities, Christian communities, where the story isn't too troubling for them, right? It doesn't challenge them. Um, mm-hmm. But my reading of the stories of the gospel is that this this work of loving one another is actually very, very hard. And mm-hmm. that the more that we practice that with the kinds of challenges that are put forth in the New Testament stories, right, we, we, would, we would be challenged out of our complacency, right? Um, so mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm sitting and nodding along, right, uh, and I leave my congregation on Sunday morning and I'm feeling kind of good about myself and I'm, and I'm kind of, you know, committed to being a nicer person as I move through the world, uh, you know, that's that's a nice little pat on the back and off you go. Um, but the story to me is so much more challenging than that. It yeah. really is the question, right, who is my neighbor and what does it mean to love my neighbor? And if I really took a good look at that and asked the question about how I live in the world alongside human beings who don't have enough money to, to have a roof over their heads or food or an education, let alone a bank account and, you know, mm-hmm. investments, yeah. right? Uh, how do I live in that world? Well, I live in that world by telling myself a story that everything's okay and I'm a good person and I don't have to, you know, that, that God's going to take care of that. Well, that's not the right. story of the gospel as far as right. I'm concerned. Um, so it's so, a disappointment to me. So, and believe it or not, we we just hit the hour mark. It felt feels like it was like uh, fifteen minutes. Um, so, has, tell me, has your book met with um, much resistance? Are you um, you're not getting death threats or anything? Or no, you? no, uh, I, I it hasn't um, I, it hasn't had serious resi- You know, the 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 greatest resistance is simply ignoring it, right? That that those who have the power to either engage this work or not engage it just 
you know simply decide not to um i've had i've had the crazy experience you know what 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 the, the the things that you get online you know that's your first line of 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 response of public response uh and there was a piece that was done that was uh, fairly widely circulated and the and the notes that were you know the postings onto that report um Half of the half of the postings, because the the title was something like Christianity, white Christians responsible for racism, and half of the postings said, "Yeah, tell us something we don't know," and the other half of the postings said, "You know what? She's crazy. She's out of her mind. That makes no sense." Um, mm-hmm. So, so the sense in which the the reality of white Christianity participating in and constructing uh, racial injustice and racism. Uh, the, the, that reality is something that some people know all too well, uh, and other people f- simply cannot see it. Right? Again, going back to the things that we've talked about, right? They they don't recognize that history, right? They don't think about Christianity as engaged in uh, the kind of legislation that has kept people from home ownership, uh, education, uh, land ownership, et cetera. Um, and so they simply dismiss the premise, right, that, that mm-hmm. Christianity could have some sort of a, a role that it played in an ideology of Christian supremacy and an ideology of white supremacy. Um, so, so Is there I any hope, had, yeah. oh. hope on the horizon? I mean, are there... Or are there Christian, or are there any significant Christian groups out there getting any traction for any of this? Yeah, so there, I mean, so on a personal level, I have seen uh, uh, congregations using the book, a few, not, not, you know, not, not crazy book clubs all over the place, but a few congregations that have taken seriously the opportunity to read uh, this work and others. Um, Joseph Barnt is an anti-racism activist who has a great book called Becoming an Anti-Racist Church. Um, uh, so there are, uh, there are courageous congregations that are addressing this um the ucc church as a denomination right as a as a as a you know not just a local congregation but as a denomination has put out resources that are very similar to the kinds of history and the kinds of analysis and the kinds of uh facing head-on the reality of racism um and there um the ucc church has made those available i believe online right in electronic form a whole curriculum that congregations can work through. Um, mm. So there is work being there is work being done. Um, I think that it's only in the from my own experience before I uh, the book the book was just published in in August and prior to that time I felt like if I put white supremacy right out there uh, in the title it might scare some people off. Um, I think that we've come to a point from out of the civil rights movement fifty years later that more and more of us are willing to name a reality of white supremacy, right? Not just interpersonal racism, not just discrimination, but in fact an ideology of white supremacy that needs to be addressed. I, I do have Well, hope. and I think when we hear the word white supremacy, at least for me, it goes to KKK. Right. You know, you think KKK as opposed to all the rest of it. 
you know. That's right, um, and that's part of the project of the book is to say I don't I don't mention the KKK at all in the in the you know in the six chapters. And I'm pretty sure that I don't mention it at all unless it's to say this is not the kind of white supremacy I'm thinking about. The kind of white supremacy I am thinking about is the ideology that produced legislation that discriminated against people of color in this country and then created the conditions for it to appear that white people had risen on their own, right, to positions mm-hmm. of, of, of power and wealth and education, et cetera. Right. Yeah, just like the rich, you know, oftentimes they're rich because they inherited their money, not that they earned it. <laughs> You know, either that or, you know, who did they exploit? You know, I mean, we know CEOs are making over 300 times more than their workers, and they used to make 30 times more than their and, workers. And and we have legislation that allows that to be the case, mm-hmm. right? Just as we had legislation that allowed uh, segregation in schools, we had legislation that allowed homeowners to say, oh, no, no, I'm only going to sell my home to white people. We had legislation that said, oh, yeah, the indigenous people of this country, they never had right to the land, right? Only the European uh, uh, settlers had the right to the land, right? So all of these, all of these uh, outrageous examples of inequality have been things that we as Americans have allowed to be legislated. Okay. Right. The great the great hope that I have is that enough of us become woke, right, to the reality of white supremacy, economic disparity, the disparity in health, the disparity in 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 education, etc. And we say that that this is not the way that we as a society want to be set up and we change legislation. But that 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 takes vision, and that takes will, and that takes mobilization, and courage. Sure. You know, because I, I uh, you know, just a, a few other comments, if if you have the time. You sure. know, I think uh, for the, uh, I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I knew the country was racist, but until Barack Obama became president, I don't think I realized how racist the country was. Um, I think I think for the people in the country who are uh, racist, you know, I think about the people I know knew growing up in the South, to see um, a, a cultured, articulate black man rise to that level just shook them to their core. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, no wonder the I think the Southern Poverty Law Center said that militias tripled. You know, mm-hmm. when he uh, you know when he became president. Um, and the other thing I'll just say, and I don't know if, if you have thoughts on, you know, for a while, you know, I kept um, marinating on this idea, you know, why can't women come together? Why can't women come together? Mm-hmm. And I knew about intersectionality and all of that. And I started thinking, well, I wonder if we drop this idea of women's rights and we just focused on raising the minimum wage and and if we just focused on income disparity, would that raise all of our boats and would that solve the vast majority of problems? And a black woman I spoke to very thoughtfully said, um, no, it won't solve all the problems because that doesn't stop 
um, you know, the, the black child from being discriminated against. It doesn't stop the uh, the black guy getting stopped by the police more mm. often or being jailed more often, um, you know, and those are those are real problems. You know, just making more money won't necessarily solve all the black, you know, people of color's mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we have work to do on many different levels, right? And so this, the the reality of structural change, whether it's raising, well, in addition to raising the minimum wage, looking at how our education system is funded so that we see the racialized disparity in our education system, looking at who has access to health care and how we distribute access to health care, right, um, and how that has been racialized, uh, home ownership, right? So all of these things, um, as you're pointing to, the element of uh, raising minimum wage, all of these are structural elements that can be legislated, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But what your colleague points to is the sense in which we still have work to do on the interpersonal dimension of recognizing our shared humanity, right? So So that in addition to the structural changes, we have a lot of work to do in recognizing uh, the 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 inherent humanity of human beings in the vast range of ways that human beings are different from one another, right? Right. Um, so that um, all of these structural elements that we can see have been racialized, right? But we could also look at it through a, the lens of ableism or the lens of sexual orientation or gender identity, and we could say, you know, we can see disparities on those measures as well. Um, and so this fundamental uh, change of perspective or or change of heart or uh, relationships of intimacy that your colleague is pointing to on this interpersonal dimension, um, I think that goes hand in hand with the structural transformations that need to take place. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the final thing I'll say um uh, you know, and maybe this is making lemonades of lemons, but I think for a long time, so many of us uh, were asleep and we were comfortable. Um, but I think maybe now more than ever, uh, more people are uncomfortable, uh, more people are being affected by uh, the institutionalized domination, exploitation, mm-hmm. oppression. Um, and they realize, gee, uh, it's not just the people of color that are getting screwed, excuse me, um, mm-hmm. all of us. You know, all mm-hmm. the 99% is right. getting right. the, the screws, and, um, and, and, and it's unfortunate, but maybe that's what was going to be necessary for us to really look at it all and not just, you know, wear blinders. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I I even felt that about Trump. You know, as as horrible as he is, he would you know he would bring everything to a head, uh, mm-hmm. or help bring more things to a head, and uh, and be the catalyst in a sense mm-hmm. um, to uh, you know make people look at everything going on uh, to everybody. Um, so so that way of thinking about 
Trump uh, has an interesting parallel for me with with the marches of Martin Luther King. So so the marches of Martin Luther King uh, when they moved into the North, right? People say, oh, we don't have a problem here. Oh, we don't have all oh, the North. The problems in the South. Oh, we don't have a problem in the North, right? Things are good in the North. And and King said, no, we're marching through the North to show you what the problems are, to bring out all of those problems, right? And to 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 make it clear the kind of racism that still is behind the scenes here. And your description just now of Trump being the catalyst for so many of us to recognize the various forms of institutionalized domination, exploitation, right? That there is a, a sense in which Trump is the is the anti king, right? That mm-hmm. that uh, you know just just draws out in a very clear way, right? The 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 dominating, you know, the the the, the imperial structure of our moment, right? Where the few wealthy white men hold the positions of power in governmental decision-making, in business that's closely aligned here, right, in mm-hmm. economic, in economic, uh, you know, the economic structure, right? Um, and that, the, you know, that the rest of us who are experiencing these various forms of institutionalized domination and exploitation, right, that, that, that if we can find those ways to work together, Right then, I have a I have a colleague who has the title of their book is about mobilizing right across these different lines against uh, an empire situation where the few have control over all of these vast decisions for the many, uh, and the title of the book is Together We Are a Force, and I think that mm. we 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 lose sight of that we lose sight of the ways in which our intersectionality should invite us to think really deeply about how do we align with the energies of the Black Lives Matter movement? How do we align with the new Poor People's Campaign? How do we align with immigration uh, reform and, and well-being for immigrants uh, to this country, right? How, how, do we, how do we envision that together we could do something differently, Right. Um, Not just bemoan my own individual exploitation or domination, but look for ways. Right. That we are creating those systems and structures and movements of solidarity, Um, which is why for me, the disappointment of Christian Christian congregations not doing this work. I just think that we could. I think that we could do that thing that you described in the in the opening, right? That we can change the world. We did this. We created this structure and this system that we have that we recognize as racist, as sexist, uh, as ableist, etc. Right? If we created this, we can we can recreate it. Uh, and well, that I would like to see Christian congregations really mobilizing, uh, because together we are a force. Well, and I I think one of the things that probably hurt us more than anything, and I'm willing to be convinced otherwise, is the corporate domination of the media. Mm. Because, uh, you know, you look at the damage that Fox News has done uh, to, um, you know, whip up fear, to whip up division, um, but it could equally do the opposite, 
you know uh, mm. just as it's it just as um it, and and I think this is all by design, you know, because I mean if we fight each other, we don't fight the real enemy. I mean, maybe oversimplified, but I think it's still true. You know, I think it's in it's in corporate interest um to keep the 99% fighting for the crumbs at the bottom of the heap and fighting each other. Uh, and if there were just a way besides maybe changing Citizens United and gerrymandering, and uh, it, but if we could somehow go back to the way it was uh, before the fairness doctrine was, you know, thrown out the window, and you know we could have, uh, you know, where the you know the airwaves, the public airwaves, mm. um, you know, if they were forced to have more shows that actually educated the public about issues, um, you know, maybe even shows that were morally uplifting, um, you know, instead of what we have. I don't know. I just I, I blame a lot of it on <laughs> television. You know, mm. I think to a certain extent, you know, Hollywood, uh, they do some good things. You know, we've had some really great movies with some really great messages that, um, I think have have come out, but um, I don't know. I, I really think television and the the lack of um, uh, you know this opinion news that people you know people think opinion is actually news and um, you know I, I think it's just warped everyone's um, viewpoint. You know, and it's given license to maybe the lowest common denominator in, in society to feel like, you know, uh, that that the ugliness uh, is justified, you know, rather and than be ashamed. So I, I would uh, respond to that with the idea that we as consumers uh, of the media uh, – uh, we as consumers who participate in and drive and support corporate interests, we have to ask ourselves, the 99% of us, right? We have to ask ourselves, what are the values that we want to ground our lives in? And if they're not reflected in the media, right, if they're not reflected in the movies that we that pass our time if they're not reflected in uh, the 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 ways that uh, the stories that swirl around us in the public, um, how do we tell a different set of stories? How do we how yeah. do we not participate in that? Because I I, I appreciate that that uh, recognition of the force of the media, right? But but consumers participate in that. Uh, True. You know we 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 uh, decry. As with 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 great uh, um, clarity, right? The proliferations of, of guns, and yet our the movies that we watch and the video games that we play, we have you know entertainment that is violent, right? So yeah. how do we how do we both hold accountable the power of the media and the powerful within those positions? But how do we recognize our own complicity in that when we participate in it. Um, and so it, for, for, for me, uh, the, you know, I, I do keep coming back to the value of alternative stories. And I, and I think that, the, you know, after 2,000 years, the Christian story 
still does challenge me to say, okay, that thing I think I'm desiring, that thing I think is so important that I'm willing to place above other things, you know, is that really where my heart is? Or or would I like to root my life in a different set of values? Well, you know, you wonder if um, Christian leadership, whoever that is, aside from mm-hmm. the Pope, because the Pope certainly got a lot of backlash when, you know, he said we should be taking care of the poor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you wonder about Christian leadership, you know, um, the bishops sure. and, you know, um, why do they not feel more responsible? Um, I, I guess because, you know, they want to, uh, you know, keep the keep the money rolling into the churches, um, and you know maybe they feel like it would hurt their pocketbook too. It always comes down to the money, doesn't it? <laughs> it 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 comes down to the money, and it comes down to the 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 basic framing of whose lives do matter, right? Whose lives are important is it my life and the life of my congregation or it is the call of the christian to have uh, an orienting vision that it's the life of all human beings and the life of the earth right that we are mm-hmm. called to uh, support and protect and enhance um, right. because it's not just it's not just about money right it's not that these uh, the these leaders of congregations of Christian congregations are saying oh I want more money more money more money it's that they also are experiencing the various threats to their institutions and to their congregations, right? Well, that's um, what I meant. You know, people might yeah. stop coming if they, exactly. you know, um, challenge, challenge them to reassess their values. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yes. Yes, they certainly might. <laughs> they say, if they if they heard the call of the gospel, right, that required us to change the way we spend our money uh, and to uh, and to rethink private property um, and to uh, really make uh, a commitment to the well-being of all, not just the well-being of myself or or of some. Um, Yeah, I think that could be sufficiently challenging that people might choose to stop coming. Uh, And that's probably why um, there's a lot of congregations who won't do this work. Right. Well, one last thought, and then I'll give you the final word, Janine. Um, I want to—I've uh, mentioned it before, but I want to mention it again because I think it's important. I think it's the author Kevin Cruz uh, mm-hmm. has a book out that talks about, um, and you could find him on Amazon. He he talks about how corporate America really took hold of Christianity in the United States mm-hmm. in the 20s and the 30s, mm-hmm. and. Started this whole idea of mixing capitalism and Christianity together, and uh, and and shaped it into what we have today. And I I can't help but think uh, because of that, you know, because you know we identify as a Christian nation, <coughs> whether we are or not, I don't know. But this marriage of Christianity and capitalism, mm. uh, I think, is going to make it very difficult for us to 
uh, go in a different direction. I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong. I would love nothing more than because I, I think like the you know like um, democratic socialism, like they have in Scandinavia, and mm. a lot of the values that Bernie Sanders was was pushing. You know, I I, I, I don't know. I kind of think that's what the vast majority of the country would really want, uh, as long as you didn't put the S word on it. You know, socialism because you know that word's been demonized like feminism's been demonized um yeah. but it 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 just feels like to me um that that's really where more people um might really want to go uh but because of the uh, you know capitalism and christianity being so um you know intertwined uh it 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 um hurts those chances to move in a more democratic socialist uh, direction where more people, I think, would have a better shot at a better so, quality of life. So the, uh, the I'm not familiar with, with Cruz's work, but I'm intrigued by, by it and, the, and your description of it. Um, the, the intertwining of Christianity and capitalism did not fall from the sky. It is part of a project that could look and see what, what Cruz has offered, but I could also look and see as a theologian. I could see the way that I, I, I would be able to look for those places where theologians manufactured ideas that made it seem reasonable for Christianity and capitalism to be so closely married, right? Uh, that, 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 okay. that, theolo- that, that, that the project of Christianity is a project of communal storytelling and theological production, right? So in the same way that Cruz is saying Christianity and capitalism have become um, utterly intertwined, the, the, the chapters of my book ask us to see the way that Christianity and theologians within Christianity manufactured ideas to make white supremacy and Christianity uh, intertwined and seem reasonable that they would be intertwined, right? So, okay. so, so the, the, the parallel point that I'm making here is that the intertwining of Christianity with you know, other systems of value like capitalism, like white supremacy, is something that was created, constructed from out of theological uh, production, right? That mm-hmm, some, mm-hmm. Someone told the story in such a way that made it seem reasonable, right. which is why uh, I have hope that Christians who desire a different social reality, right, one that is more just, one that is uh, uh, a vision of racial uh, uh, um, uh, equity and uh, harmony and justice, right, that if that's what we desire, it's the task of Christians to go back to their text and say, is this a way, is there a way of telling the story that draws out these elements Mm-hmm. And how do we continue to produce these ideas so that people will see that it's unreasonable for Christianity and white supremacy to be so closely intertwined? Exactly. That people will see or, or that it's capitalism. unreasonable. Or right, capitalism. exactly. That it's unreasonable for capitalism and Christianity to be so closely intertwined. But I think that, that Cruz's analysis may be, uh, and your, your um, concern about how doable is this, uh, those might be real challenges, um, but that's why training Christian theologians and 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 empowering Christian congregations and uh, developing the skills for Christian leadership that 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 looks back at the text 
and allows that text to speak uh, forward the world we want to live in um, is, is where I place my hope, that this can be done. Well, you know, I, you've just convinced me that your book, The Sin of White Supremacy, and Cruz's book would make wonderful bookends. Um, I, I just looked his up real quick, just in case you do want to look for it. One Nation Under God, How Corporate America Invented Christian America. Nice. That's great. Kevin Cruz. Yeah, and again, you know, I want to uh, tout your book, uh, Sin of White Supremacy, uh, Christianity, Racism, and Religious Diversity in America. Janine, I've enjoyed talking to you, and I hope if you have time, you'll come back and talk about a couple of your other books. Um, I think it would make uh, some wonderful conversations if you have time, um, you know, maybe in the summer. That sounds terrific. I've really enjoyed having the chance to think deeply and widely um, with you and hope that it has been uh, uh, thought-provoking and uh, maybe inspiring or mobilizing for uh, those who've been listening in. I think so. I think so. And um, uh, any final thoughts? Do you want to give uh, you know website information, book information, anything like that at all to listeners? Sure. Sure. I'm not sure whether you uh, you've named that you have the title of the book, The Sin of White Supremacy. The publisher is Orbis Books, um, but it's also available on Amazon. Um, and if uh, if uh, listeners have uh, uh, thoughts on on the book and want to share them, uh, my contact information can be found at the Fordham Theology Fordham University Department of Theology website. Okay. Well, thank you so very much, and uh, I, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And um, I, I, you know, I just want to say thank you, thank you for the and, work you're doing in the world, and and thank you for the chance to uh, to think together about it. I look forward to future conversations. Me too. Me too. Very much so. Well, good night, and I hope uh, I hope uh, your book is uh, used in the book circles across the country. It's much needed. Put that energy out there. <laughs> May it happen. Terrific. Great. Thanks so much, Karen. I appreciate it. Okay. Good night. And before we go, listeners, uh, I almost forgot uh, there's a word uh, for everyone from Joe Carson. So let's uh, give a listen. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. 
a visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film. In it, she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of goddess as Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot this film. These spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see these sites yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only 20 bucks. What a deal. And you can find it at DancingWithGaia.com, DancingWithGaia.com. Um, and before I say goodnight, uh, listeners, I want to tell you who will be with me uh, next Wednesday. Uh, my guest will be Robert Jensen, and uh, he has a book out called The End of Patriarchy, Radical Feminism for Men. Yep, uh, I think it's going to be another good one. So please tune in. Uh, please tell your friends about the show. And please, if um, this is one of the wells that feeds you, I hope you will go to my website, karentate.com. Once you're there, go to the um, Goddess Store page, scroll all the way down to the very bottom, very bottom, and there is a PayPal button there. I would appreciate any donations you can make towards the show to help me pay for airtime. Thank you so very much for listening, and um, please tell your friends. Good night.